We will be in Ezra 6. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you that we learn so many things from it. And this morning, as we look at this celebratory passage, help us to understand the ins and outs of it and the things that we need to learn to apply in our own lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. That, uh, please be seated. That was a long scripture reading out of the, the book of the Kings, Second Kings. The reason why I wanted to read that this morning was to present the contrast between Solomon's temple, which is what that was all about, God talking to Solomon, and then this temple that just gets finished in Zerubbabel's time way down the road. It explained why God let the Babylonians come down and cause the city to fall, the temple to be destroyed, and for them to be taken into captivity. That's all explained in that passage, because that passage says, you're the ones that caused this to happen. And uh, the people around were asking, what did, what did the people do that God did this to them? Well, the answer was they had turned away from God. Anyway, so that's kind of the background historically, so we can jump right in. When I lived in Detroit, uh, there was a friend of mine who was a police officer who worked his way up through the ranks eventually. He became a, a lieutenant in charge of resource management division, uh, and that's the people who control all the properties that the police have, the cars that they buy, helicopters, and making sure that the money is spent where it's supposed to be spent, properly and well done. At one point in time, one of the mayors, and I don't remember who it was, uh, was running for re-election, and he had already done a number of massive projects that he had brought on board, and he'd, of course, given them to his own relatives to oversee and their companies to earn the profits from those things, and many times it doesn't end well when that happens. And it's exactly true. They had this big dedication at a massive building and a facility that was going to be used by both the police and the fire department. They're like all of their headquarters were going to be there. And they had the cameras and everything, and they did the dedication, and uh, and then they left. What people didn't know was that most of the building was inoperable. They couldn't even get in and out of the front gate because they had poured the asphalt after they put the gate in so that the asphalt went up to the bottom of the gate and the gate couldn't open. Uh, they installed a very, very fancy, amazing um, circulation system, air circulation system, but it didn't work because they installed it backwards. And so my friend's job was to go around to find all of these things that were wrong. He had a long, long list uh, just on this building. And what he said to them was, we're done with what's been happening so far. We're going to start over. Here, you take that circulation system you start over, you do whatever you need to do, and get it up and running. To the gate people, same thing. You need to start over. It's a mess. It doesn't work. Do whatever you need to do, but it's your responsibility to bring it online. He just was his job to go around to everybody. Imagine all the, the head contractor and all the subcontractors on a massive building. But it was such bad shape, it took that. And they literally, in some cases, had to rip stuff out and start over. You know, you think about starting over, the nation of Judah is doing that right now, aren't they? They're coming back. They've been in exile, and it was because of the punishment that had come down on them for worshiping other gods and, and for disobeying God and His Word. And so now, God brings them back. They're in Jerusalem, and they're in, in the land again, and they're starting over on one level. And they started over right away when they got there, and then that stopped. A bunch of time went by, and then Haggai... And, and uh, Zechariah came along and said, hey, we need to 
get back to work on the house, uh, work on the house of God. So, if you remember back a few Sundays ago, in the first 12 verses of, Ch- of Ezra chapter 6, the governor had sent a request to the, um, to the king, uh, saying, hey, these Jews are rebuilding this temple, and um, we need to make sure that it really was ordered by King Cyrus, as they say. So would you do a search uh, of the thing? Of course, they come back, they search, they find it. And that's when the king, Darius, says to the governor there named Tateni, stay away from them. Leave them alone. As a matter of fact, pay for all the rest of the building and provide for the sacrifices. Okay, that's what was commanded of him when he asked for this information to come back. And that's where we pick it up in verse 13. Tateni, governor of the province of west of the Euphrates, and Shebthar Bozai, their colleague, complied at once with the commands of King Darius. And so they get the letter back. It wasn't what they wanted, but they also knew their heads were on the line. And so they said, okay, this is what we need to do. Let's go do it. And so they started preparing and giving them all the stuff that they needed uh, to do the building. Uh, Darius had made it very clear, don't get in their way. Help them provide what they need. Uh, verse 14, the Jewish leaders continued their work, and they were greatly encouraged by the preaching of the prophet Haggai and Zechariah. So remember, we talked about they came along, and they had been stopped for 16, 18 years, and now they said, hey, let's get going. Build the house of God. Why are we focusing on ourselves rather than on God? And, of course, Haggai says, listen, you guys have had problems, and your crops haven't done well. You're, nothing's gone well for you because you've disobeyed God. You came and you started, but then you stopped. It's time to get started again. Let's get going. Let's do a fresh start right from here. And that was the message they kept preaching to them. Um, the temple was finally finished, commanded by God. Um, and three different Persian kings had part of the process of signing off on it. Verse 15 says, The temple was completed on March 12th during the sixth year of King Darius's reign. So there you go, during the sixth year of King Darius's reign. Finally, 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 the temple is finished. Um, again, you've got these people's names that are mentioned here. Uh, Artaxerxes and um, Darius and Cyrus. And, and all three of those kings were involved in some part of the construction of the whole city. But um, Artaxerxes was really having to do more with the wall itself. And we saw that earlier in, in the book of Haggai. Uh, so <clears throat> in verse 14, it says something interesting. Um, As had been commanded by the God of Israel and decreed by Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. And so there you go. You have the whole... Thing. And these people are mentioned because they're part of the whole process, even though they're not chronologically right there in that point. It's Darius at this point. Cyrus is already out of the picture. There's an implication here. Let's look at verse 14. So the Jewish elders continued their work, and they were greatly encouraged by the preaching of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. The temple was finally finished, as had been commanded by the God of Israel, and decreed by Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. Now, I love the fact that God said, this is what's going to happen. And it did. Uh, like creation, God spoke, and it came into existence. And, and in this case, God commanded, we're going to rebuild the temple, and Cyrus, you're the man that's going to do that. And sure enough, Cyrus comes along, 
And, and he makes that statement that that would be taken care of. Now, just think of what God did in this process. So he, he moved in the hearts of at least three of those kings to do something beneficial for Israel. Building the temple, then later on building the walls. Think about this governor from Trans-Euphrates. He sends this letter to Darius and says, Hey, I, these people are troublesome people and they're trying to build something and I'm sure they're not supposed to. And so he asks the king to do a search. Now, we think of doing a search and we sit down at a computer and we type the right command in and, you know, we have thousands of things that pop up and we see them. Uh, they didn't have that. They didn't ha- even have microfilm, if you've ever been involved with doing microfilm searches. They didn't have a file cabinet that they could go through. What they did have was thousands of scrolls, thousands of clay tablets, and in some cases cylinders, which they would write circularly all the way around the cylinder. Uh, I was in Chicago at one of the museums there, and I saw the Hezekiah cylinder, where there's all these things described. I couldn't read it because I don't read that language, but it's right there, and it was amazing to see. Well, that's what they were looking for through all of the scrolls, through all of the tablets, through all of the cylinders. Where's that one paragraph where Cyrus said, I want the people to go back, give them back the gold, give them back everything, send them back to build the temple of God. Um, so there's a massive church, and the request uh, of that took place and finally, they didn't find it in Babylon. Um, finally, they find it in a place called Eptana, which is about 300 miles north of Babylon. And they found it there. They had a massive place where they were storing things there as well. And the reason why it was there was that when it was written, that's where, that's where Cyrus was staying that summer. So he's, you know ruling from Ectana, and he's there, and he commands this to go out, and it goes into the royal archives right where he is. So think about all that had to happen for that exact piece of scroll to be looked at and found. That's pretty spectacular. And to me, the, the incredible thing in all that is that it happened, and it was like it was no big deal. Oh, yeah, that's right. Here it is. And then all everything was done with the, with the people trying to complain and say things. So the thing that I... Just thinking through that, you know, had I been ordered to find something like that, I'd have been just, oh man, really? Um, this is horrible. I'm going to spend a lifetime trying to find this. And yet for God, it was just no big deal. God knew right where it was. God understood it was in this town, in this room, and it's on this particular scroll. And he brought the people there, found the scroll, found the information, and they were able to say, yep, here it is. This is what Cyrus says. And so the, all of the details were there. They just had to find it, and God directed. What kinds of things do we face every week? Well, we don't have to do those kinds of things, but um, we st- struggle different things. This week's been one of those weeks where every phone call I got, I didn't know what was gonna, kind of news I was going to be getting, whether it was going to be good news or bad news. And in most cases this week, it, from a human perspective, was like, oh, man. <laughs> and yet, you know, and God knows what he's doing. He really does. Um, I guess really what it comes down to is do we trust the sovereignty of God? Do we believe that He really is all-knowing and as a result of that, and the result of His sovereignty, the result of His power and His wisdom and His grace, that He works in such a way that is beneficial to His people? My grandmother had a twin sister, and they were born a couple of months before their father died, a couple of months after their father had passed away. And they lived through the, the Great Depression, 
very, very bleak circumstances, and eventually went and became doctors. Both of them became doctors, and they were some of the first female doctors in western Michigan. And um, I used to love, every now and then, Grandma and I would go out to eat, and she'd um, she'd be telling me stories and about the things that were going on and about how hard it was for them. You know, you've got a mom and four daughters. That's what was left behind when Dad died. And entering into the Depression and all that was going on, and yet they all made it. And, and, and you know, she wasn't a Christian. And then eventually she, she married my grandfather, and both of them came to Christ. Both of them believed and became a part of the church that uh, actually sent Carol and I to the mission field many years ago. Um, they had a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulties. And I remember uh, I was sharing some hard things I was going through. She says, you know what? This is what I learned way back, Mark. You need, to, you need to remember this. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. And she made sure I got that down. And then she talked to me about it. And it's interesting because if we actually live it that way. Think of what that would do for us. God said it. Here it is, right here in His Word. I believe it because God said it. And in that case, there's nothing to, to be concerned about at that point. I'm going to go ahead and live it out. Romans 8.28 is one of those verses that we remember in times of difficulty. Um, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. Do we believe it? God said it. Do we believe it? Do we act on it? So again, if you want, if you go away with nothing else today, remember my grandma's saying, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And as we're facing things where we're wondering, okay, so what am I supposed to do here? We think, okay, God said something, or there's this principle, or this application here. He said it. Now, do I believe that to be true? And should it be true in my life? Well, yeah, it should be. Then, okay, it's taken care of. I don't have to to fight or, or quarrel with anybody over this. God said it. I believe it. And it's taken care of. Let's uh, let's go ahead and move on um, as we work our way through this last chapter of, or sixth chapter of Ezra. Um, verse 16, the temple of God was then dedicated with great joy. The people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the people who had returned from exile. During the dedication ceremony of the temple of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs were sacrificed, and 12 male goats were presented as a sin offering for the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, of course, they took time to divide up the Levites. After they dedicated it, they organized the Levites and, and the priests in the way that David had said before. Um, now, this is an interesting thing when you think it through. Um, they stopped working on the temple. They'd gone through some hardship as a result of that. Now they've started again, and they've finished it, and now they're dedicating it. This is a, a dedication service that they're doing here. Um, just in contrast, there was another dedication for the temple before this one, which was Solomon's temple. Go ahead and put that up there, Daryl. Thank you. Um, Ezra's time period, they sacrificed 100 bulls. Solomon, it was 22,000 cattle when they dedicated the first temple. Ezra, 200 rams, 400 male lambs. In Solomon's time, it was 120,000 sheep and goats. Now, one thing we need to remember, 
the population in Solomon's time in Jerusalem was huge. I mean, we're talking lots and thousands of people. And when people came in for the festivals, the city of Jerusalem was full. Some people estimate that almost a million people could have been at any of those Passovers during those time frames. Um, but here you've got that temple's been destroyed because the people were disobedient. They built up this other one. God has asked them to build. And remember... Cyrus said, whoever wants to go back can go back. And really, so far, only about 50,000 of them had come back. So it wasn't a whole lot of them there, especially the 10 northern tribes never came back. They were taken to Assyria. And so there's a smaller group of people. And the reality is this is all they needed in order to be able to do what they were doing with the dedication of the temple. These offerings, the first ones, the bulls and the cattle and the rams and the sheep, those were all given uh, and they were fellowship offerings. They would be offered as a sacrifice, and then large portions of them were used as a meal as the people would come around to have fellowship and eat together from the sacrifice that had been presented. Now, in this case, we also have, though, 12 male goats that were presented as sin offerings. Now, this is something a little different. And, and the reason that they're doing this, again, is to say, Lord, we know we have blown it a lot. We've made these huge mistakes uh, we know that we have sinned, and we want to do the sin offerings in this way. So one person and one um, lamb were offered as, or a male goat were offered as a sacrifice for Judah, another one for Benjamin, and then another one for uh, <clears throat> Ephraim. And all, all 12 tribes were represented. Now, remember, there's only two tribes left. It's Judah and Benjamin. All the others were taken in captivity by Assyria, and none of them ever returned. Um, and so you've got this sin offering that's being offered by the people of Israel uh, in Zerubbabel's time frame. And, it, and it's interesting, all 12 tribes are represented by the 12 goats. And this is what would happen. Let me just share this with you. Someone would bring that place a hand. The one who brought the animal would place their hand on the animal, identifying with the animal, and then they would help slaughter that animal. Okay, So they were part of that process. And then that the blood was caught, some of it was taken into the temple itself and sprinkled right in front of the Holy of Holies, where the veil was, was there. Some was placed on the incense altar, and the rest of the blood was poured out in front of the altar when they came back out. And they did that 12 times. Now, any, any offering for sin all through Israel's history, that's the way that offering was treated. And then it was, it was uh, consumed entirely on, on the altar. And so they brought these 12 goats, and it was really the people saying, listen, we have, we've been so disobedient to God. I mean, that's why we ended up in Babylon. And so let's, let's offer our sacrifices that say we have sinned, and we want to get right with God. That's essentially what they're saying. So it's a confession of failure. We have failed to do what God wants us to do. And it's also a condition of faith saying, Lord God, we know you're there and that you've commanded these things. And we know that there is still is the ability to be forgiven. There is still the opportunity for us to trust you and to continue being your covenant people. And that's really what they're doing as they're going through this, this time frame where they're dedicating the temple. Um, at that point, then they installed the priests and the Levites. And uh, David had set up a system, uh, even before they had the temple, they still had the tabernacle. And David set up a system where they would have all of these groups, these divisions, so that the priests would serve twice a year for one week. And then they would go home to their homes. And that's what happened. Remember when Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was serving for his one week, that's when the angel spoke to him. 
and told them that they were going to have a son, and they were to name him John. So Israel is starting over here, and it's a wonderful thing to see. Okay, let's get this right. Let's do it properly. Let's do the sin offerings. Let's do the fellowship offerings. Um, And the Old Testament law gave them that opportunity. Now, they were starting over, so they made sure that they obeyed God's word completely. Okay? They made sure that they understood, okay, this is what we need to be doing. And it's interesting, because as you go through the book of Ezra, all the way through it says they did this according to all that was written in the law. So they did this. Why did they do this? Because it was in God's Word. They did this. Why? Well, because it was written right here, and God said it, and they believed it, and so they acted on it. And so starting over for them meant clearly obedience. Okay, we're starting over. We've disobeyed down through our history. Starting now, let's let's just step out in obedience and follow the Lord. Now, time goes by. They've all gone back to their homes or continued working at their homes. There's regular activities at the temple. Um, but on in verse 19, it says, On April 21st, the returned, they returned, uh, I'm sorry, on April 21st, the returned exiles celebrated Passover. Okay, so they celebrated Passover, and this is what would have been commanded to them way back when they were still in Egypt. And it turns out that this is probably the first Passover that is being celebrated since Josiah, and that was way before the time when they were taken captives, taken into exile. And so here they are, they're celebrating the Passover, and um, they're looking forward to doing this, and it's one of three annual feasts that the people were supposed to come to Jerusalem and, and enjoy being a part of. Um, so here they are, starting over, doing Passover for the first time. None of them had ever celebrated Passover, this group of people. They hadn't been in a position or a place where they could. And so now they're, in the, they're back in Jerusalem, they're back in, in the country, and they are back in, in fellowship with God. They're worshiping and presenting sacrifices the time comes along for the Passover, and they all go to Jerusalem and say, okay, let's, let's celebrate the Passover. Um, so verse 20 says, the priests and Levites purified themselves. That was the ritual purification with certain kinds of washings they had to do. And so they were all ceremonially clean, and so they could do the sacrifices. Um, and then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles. Now, if you remember, the Passover lamb was supposed to be killed and the blood was supposed to, in the first one they put the blood over the door frames and then they were supposed to eat the lamb and that changed a little bit as time went on and they celebrated a little bit differently but there was always a lamb which was presented and then taken to be eaten by the people who were celebrating Passover and so you know here they are and the, and the priests are, are sacrificing all of these animals and doing what they need to do before they give them back to the people so they can go ahead and and um, <clears throat> celebrate the, the Passover um, verse 21, the Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. So that's the group that came back, built the temple, got it up and going, got the priest back in place. So this is, this is the people who were celebrating the temple. But then it says, and by the others, people who were already still in the land, who had turned from their corrupt practices to worship the Lord. Remember, in the earlier chapters, some people came along and said, oh, yeah, we want to help you. We want to be part of this. But they were really, they, they were Jewish, perhaps in origin uh, genetically, but they were not when it comes to faith. They were worshiping Baal and everybody else. What appears that some of them 
had realized and confessed their sin and had come back to be able to be part of the Jewish people in all this process. So Passover was celebrated by the people who came back from exile and those that were in the land who repented of the way they had been living and had turned back to God. Then verse 22, they celebrated the Lord had caused, they celebrated that the Lord had caused the king of Assyria to be favorable to, favorable to them, so they helped them rebuild the temple. Interesting. Why did they say king of Assyria instead of king of Persia? Because it wasn't the king of Assyria anymore. Well, there's a couple of thoughts on that. One is that, uh, and we see in the writings of Herodotus that many centuries after Assyria, people would refer to the kings sometimes as the kings of Assyria. Reason? Well, Assyria was the first empire, and Babylon comes along, and then Persia comes along, and they basically took over all of the things that the other empire had. And so it's very possible that that's what's being said. Hey, you know, the first people there were the Assyrians, and so we named them after them. Um, Ezra then also may have been making the point that the practice of exiling Jews out of the country, never to return again, had ended. Okay? Some of them had come back. Cyrus had said, anyone who wants to go back can go back. And so that practice of exiling and never allowing them to come back had ended. And so that may be one of the reasons why he mentioned um, the king of Assyria to be favorable towards them. Now, you've got an eight-day time frame here for celebration. First, there's the celebration of Passover, which is the one day. And then immediately following that was the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Um, the first Passover took place 900 years before this. Okay? So almost a thousand years before this, they did it in Egypt. And now they're doing it for the first time again back in the country. And, and it's, it's this amazing time where they're, where they are realizing that they're redoing something almost historically. So they're again saying, okay, yeah, we have been set free by, by the Lord God. We have been brought back into the promised land. The others were coming to the promised land, and that's when they celebrated that Passover as they left Egypt. Now these folks are back in the land after having been exiled, and they are celebrating the Passover as well as the, the day of, or the feast of unleavened bread. And so it signaled to the, to the exile and to the remnant of the nation that we are back and we are right with God, we're in fellowship with Him, we're seeking to obey His law, we're doing the sacrifices, and we're celebrating the feasts the way we are supposed to. And that was the reason why they they were in such a a great time of celebration at this point. The temple had been rebuilt, it was done, and now they could, you know, continue to worship God. Um, Again, remember, originally the Passover was a deliverance from Egypt. Um, For the exiles, it's deliverance from being in exile and being brought back to uh, the promised land. And they could celebrate the fact that God was giving them a chance to start fresh all over again. Isn't that cool? God is that kind of a God that when we blow it, he says, okay, when we confess, here you go. Start fresh. What do we take away from all this? I was um, thinking some of these things through. Thinking, again, thinking back over my life and remembering all the times I needed a fresh start. The time I said this, or the time I did this, or the time I went the wrong direction in my walk with God. All those times required me to think through, understand what God was calling me to do, and then turning fully to Him again. 
and following Him. If you've ever had struggles in your marriage, you know that sometimes it, it, it just seems to snowball on you. Uh, Carol and I, um, many years ago, we were in that kind of a situation where, you know, we just, for whatever reason, we were just butting heads all the time. And I know I, I drove Carol crazy uh, at that time frame. She's not here to say amen, but she would if she was. Um, and it was interesting because it seems sometimes like the more we talked, the more we got involved in these weird things that just caused problems for us. And eventually we did what was the smart thing to do, and that was to go seek some counseling and some help from someone. And we spent quite a bit of time working through a whole lot of things. But part of it was to start over and learn how to communicate well with each other. Uh, learn how to think through and, and, and think carefully before speaking. And that was more me than Carol. Carol always thought much more about what she said than I did. Um, but all of those things took time and they took effort. And, and we finally got to the point where we realized, okay, there's going to be, no matter how long we're married, there'll be times when we are a mess, one or the other or both. And at those times we need to stop, we need to confess to the Lord, and then we need to start over. Okay, that's, okay, that stuff's done. We confess to each other. Let's move on. Let's move forward. Um, and, and that's such a much better way than, than to take whatever it was that you're upset about and put in this bag and stuffing a whole bunch of stuff in the bag until the bag explodes. That's not the way to handle it. So we were encouraged and taught, and, and Carol and I have been able since that time to say, okay, this is, this is what we need to do because we really do want to do those things. Early in our ministry in Detroit, <clears throat> there was a man who came regularly to see me, and um, he always knew something better. It was always a statement of, well, you know, if you did blank, and it would be, you know, uh, and you know, you should have said it this way. And, and uh, you know, I, it was real hard for me. He could push my buttons really easily, and I knew that, so I tried to always be patient and careful. And one day he showed up at the office, and he sat down, and he started talking about this other church that he had visited, and how amazing they were, and that they, they did this, and they did that, and, you know, we should do what they're doing. And, oh my goodness, after a while I thought, Lord, I, I don't know what's going to happen here, but help. And um, I, I must not have waited enough time for God to help me. Because at one point I finally said, you know what, I've, I've got to go. And, and I didn't have anywhere to go, but I thought, I'll go somewhere if I have to. <laughs> and um, he finally finally got the hint, and, and he left. And as he went out, I came back in the office, and I looked down, and he'd left a card there. And there was a gift in it for Carol and myself. Now, think about how that felt at that point in time. I mean, I had been impatient and had not been a very good listener. Uh, I hadn't done anything very well in that time. It wasn't like I sinned grievously or anything. But I wasn't what I should have been. And uh, it took some time and the, the, obviously the prompting of the Holy Spirit and I was able to ask Him forgiveness. And, and uh, from that point on, learn to deal with Him in a better way. So again, what was I doing? Starting over. Okay, I'd had this whole bunch of stuff going on with Him and it just had weighed on me so heavily after I asked Him to forgive me and thanked Him for the gift. At that point then I was able to say, okay, I'm starting from right here. Doesn't matter what's happened in the past. I'm starting with God's help to move forward. So what does it take to start over? Let's go quickly through some things here that I think might be encouraging. Um, starting over, I think, requires first humility. Uh, and that's a whole idea of being broken before God. Uh, statements like, I was wrong, Lord, I disobeyed, I sinned. No ifs allowed. 
Lord, if I... No, no, no. You, you, I did. You did. And David put it this way. The sacrifices you desire... The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. And if anybody needed to start over, it was David. With a sin that he had committed. And, and God gave him that opportunity for a fresh start. The second one is confession. And that's to essentially plead guilty. We don't try to explain what we've done and why we did it. Um, it's a simple statement of, Lord, I sinned against you, and I confess that to you. I, and, and name what it is that you've done, and then trust him to forgive. That's what he's promised to do, to forgive and cleanse. Um, that's an amazing display of God's grace that he continually, continually offers us that ongoing cleansing. It doesn't say on First John 1, 9, this is good for 200 attempts, and after that, you're sunk. Depends that. It's there, always. And, and that's wonderful when you think about who we are and the kinds of things we do or think or say. And so to be able to say to the, to the Lord, Lord God, you know everything, and I confess this to you, and realize that at that point, He's given me a new beginning, and that's exactly what I need. So another part of this, I think, is dependence, total, complete surrender. Um, and by the way, it's impossible to be totally, completely, fully surrendered to God without the Holy Spirit's help. Because if we're trying to do that on our own strength, that's what it is, our strength. But if we're asking the Spirit of God to help us to be surrendered and dependent on the Lord, then that's a whole different way of doing that. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He says this, We think you ought to know about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. That's how bad it was. That's how horrible whatever it was they were going through. We don't know what that was, but that... Paul says this is when it happened and this is what it was. And this is how. But as a result of going through this stuff that crushed, overwhelmed, and made them think they were going to die, as a result of going through all of that, they stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God. And that was the lesson, wasn't it? God was saying to Paul, you know, you've got a lot of great things going on and you are an amazing speaker and writer and all these things, but I need you to depend on me. And so there's all these things that he thought he might even die through all of this. And as a result, he stopped relying on himself, started to rely on God, and then he throws in this thing, oh, by the way, God's the one who raises the dead. Just in case you're wondering if he's worth, you know, turning everything over to and surrendering to him. How many times do you think Paul had to start over in his life? You remember he was a persecutor and a violent man at one point of his life. And, uh, and then he went through all kinds of situations all the rest of the way through. But God's grace kept him going. He was given a chance to start over when he needed to start over. And he needed <clears throat> several other fresh starts after his persecution of the church. But God's grace was there every step of the way. Paul learned to depend on God and not to rely on himself. And the last one, thanksgiving and praise. Um, Thessalonians, um, these four little verses are just a lot of fun. It says this, Always be joyful, 
Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? So just be joyful. Stop, you know, never stop praying. Be thankful in all the things that you do, all the circumstances you're going through. Remember, this is God's will for you. And if there was ever a group of people who needed the grace of God, it was Joseph and his brothers. Remember, they sold him into slavery. He went home and told Daddy a lie about how he'd been killed. And you remember the story. Eventually, they all end up in Egypt, and they're starving to death because of the famine. And they discover Joseph actually was alive and was the second in command of all of Egypt, and he's able to take care of them and 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 give them the food and everything that they need. And after the, his after their father died, they were scared that Joseph would get even with them for what they had done. And Joseph says, "Listen." Yes, you meant it for evil. You wanted me dead. I get that. God didn't want me that way. And so what you meant for evil, what you tried to do in an evil way, God turned it around and used it for amazing good. And so he says, I, no question. I praise God and I thank God for all of you. And so what a, what a great way to give them an opportunity to start over with him. You know, okay, confess it to God, get ready. And now here you go. Let's do it again. Keep going. So we have an infinite sovereign God who's full of grace and one who works in all situations. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the power of your word. Just, uh, Lord, as we transition here to take communion together, I just ask that you would encourage us to remember the price that was paid for us and to to be worshipful and thankful for that sacrifice. And so as we move into celebrating your death, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see a little bit of what that was all about and what that was like and to be thankful. So we thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Now, if you're at home and uh, you don't have a fancy little cup with a wafer on the top, that's okay. Uh, you can use anything you've got at home, a piece of bread, any kind of juice or whatever. It's the, it's a symbol. It's not the thing. So please feel free to join us in this. And if you don't have a little cup, please free, feel free to go get one. I'm going to run through some verses in Hebrews that I was going through this week very quickly as we head into our time of communion. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. So he's saying, hey, these are Jewish people who were thinking about leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. And he's saying, let me tell you what this is all about. And so he says, the, the law was a good thing, but it was a shadow of the good things to come. It was really just a dim preview, um, not the good things themselves. So the sacrifice under the system, it were repeated again and again, year after year, but they never were able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. The Old Testament and all the sacrifices were merely a constant reminder that there was a time coming when there would be a one-time-for-all sacrifice. And all of those things from the Old Testament pointed towards Christ. Uh, Verse 2 says, If they, those sacrifices, could have provided perfect cleansing, then the sacrifices would have stopped. But they didn't because we're still pointing to Christ. Verse 3, but instead those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. So he's saying, you're going to the temple, you're doing all the right things, but it reminds you that you're a sinner and that you need the sacrifice to be able to be right with God. 
Verse 4 says, For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Again, God set the system up, but the system was set up with a constant looking forward. I want to be in fellowship with God. This is how I do it now. But a time is coming when this won't be necessary. That was always kind of the, the thought. So then in verse 11 of Hebrews 10, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So now the writer of Hebrews is saying, Now remember, at the temple... There's no place for the priest to sit. Why? Because he continually has to work. He's always offering sacrifices. The work is never done. And so he he can't sit down. In verse 12, But when this priest, speaking of Christ, had offered for one time, or for, for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. It was over. The sacrifice of Christ is all that was needed. He's the perfect last sacrifice of atonement. And when he died and people put their trust and their faith in what he did for them, that's it. We're forgiven. Um, and then, since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the one sacrifice of Christ, when we put our faith and trust in him, that's all that's necessary. That one sacrifice, the perfect Son of God dying in our place, is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we don't have sacrifices, animal sacrifices. We don't have to do them all the time, every week, every day. We had one sacrifice. We believed Jesus Christ. And now we walk in the light of that sacrifice. I'm going to pray for the bread, and then we'll sing a song before we take it together.